Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Board Game Shenanigans Podcast, where we review the games we've been playing and discuss board game-related topics. My name is Bob. And I'm Natasha. In this week's episode, we are going to be reviewing Alhambra, Orion, and Altiplano. In the discussion topic this week, we are going to continue on with our interviews with mental health professionals. And this week, we will be joined by Adam, who is the founder of the nonprofit Game to Grow. But first, let's talk some games. Yeah. This week, we got a chance to play Alhambra, which is a hand management tile placement game designed by Dirk Hen, art by Jorg Esselborn, Joe Hartwig, Patricia Lamberger, and Christoph Tisch, published by Queen Games. In this game, players take on the role of master builders acquiring tiles to be placed within their Alhambra complex. They're going to do this by acquiring four different currencies, using those currencies to purchase tiles, and then placing those tiles into their personal Alhambra. The game is played over a variable amount of rounds, and on a player's turn, they can take one of three actions. They can take money from an open market, which again comes in four different currencies, and the value ranges from one to nine. They can purchase a building tile and either place it immediately into their Alhambra, or they can put it into a reserve. Each tile is placed randomly in one of four spots that corresponds to the four currencies in the game. Each of these tiles will have a value on it, and if you can buy the tile for the exact amount, then you get a bonus turn. And you can keep doing this for all four tiles, but the tiles do not replace until the end of your turn. Or finally, players can either add or remove a tile into their Alhambra from their reserve. This game has three individual scoring rounds, which are going to be randomly shuffled into the currency deck, so players are not exactly sure when they will appear, but they're going to be scored based on who has the most of each of the six different building types, as well as they're going to score the longest wall section that they have made. I think what makes this game great is how excellent it works as a welcoming game. I really enjoy showing this to new players, and I think the best part is when a player purchases tiles and they're able to clear out the row and get that additional bonus action. There's just something really special about buying all four tiles and then being able to place them in your Alhambra on a single turn. There's something about that I think that's cool. Yeah. This When was this game made? 2003. Wow. It's an old game and I've heard a lot about it. And this is the first time I played it was just this week. And man, is it good. I love it. You either take money or you take a tile. And if you can take a tile with the exact change, you have to take another tile. It's so satisfying, so fun. And the But the way you place the tiles is really interesting. So there's these walls around some of the tiles and you want, you get points for each wall section. That's, you know, your largest wall section. Yep. So that makes it really interesting because you don't necessarily want to take all the tiles or you don't want to take them and place them at least right now. I think there's a, there's a lot of strategy and depth around those tile placements as well. And that really just adds a whole nother extra layer of strategy, but without being complicated either. Yeah, for the most part, turns are extremely simple. You have those three actions you can pick. Mm-hmm. You pick one, you do it. If you acquire tile, you can add it to your Alhambra. If you can't, you can always put it in your reserve. So you always have the ability to put it in there. And as far as the tile placement rules, they're pretty simple. You have to be able to get back to the center of your Alhambra in some way. Mm -hmm. So you're always naturally drawing lines back 
So for the most part, it's pretty intuitive. Mm -hmm. Walls can touch each other, but a wall can't be connected to a tile that doesn't have another wall. So the only way you can ever have two tiles touching are if they have two walls together. Mm -hmm. Well, or no walls. Or no walls, right. Mm-hmm. There's walls. and there's there's six different types of tiles, six different colors, and there's area majority with those color tiles. So every time you score, you score area majority, which but it doesn't matter where you place them. It's really just the walls that matter where you place the tiles. Yeah, you want to make a big wall so you can score as many points. What I like about the three scoring rounds is so you break the deck up into piles. One pile is going to have your first scoring, the next pile is going to have your second, and then the last pile is going to have your third. And in the first scoring phase. It's only first place for those tiles. Mm-hmm. Whoever has the most. If there's a tie, you split the points. In the second scoring phase, it's first and second. And then the last one it plays, it scores first, second, and third. So there's this natural progression like, yes, I may, I don't necessarily have the lead on these particular buildings, like green buildings. I don't have the lead for green buildings, but mm-hmm. I can get there where I can score second in the next scoring phase. So you're almost setting things up for future turns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like it. I was surprised um, how much I liked it. It it does look a little bit like a game built in the 80s, or not the 80s. It does. The, the 80s? <laughs> it does look a little bit like a game designed in the early 2000s. It's yeah. the, those planned colors, but it's not as bad as, it's not as bad as you'd expect it to be either. It still holds its own. It looks fine. I think there's a certain charm in it mm-hmm. for me personally, but. Yeah, I can see why it's so popular. I remember watching it. Will Wheaton did an episode on tabletop of it, and I, you know, still hadn't played it at that time. All these years, I'm finally getting around to play with it, and it's on Board Game Arena, which makes it really fun. Play it there. Yeah, it's one of those games that, like I said, was probably my second favorite game to show new people until Azul came out. But Mm -hmm. it has a very similar concept to Ticket to Ride, where on a turn, you just pick one of the three things you can do mm-hmm. and you just do it. And so you're collecting money and it gets to this point where the turns are kind of fast. You're collecting money, you're collecting money. And then all of a sudden somebody has this turn where they start scooping up tiles. So then there's this tension of, okay, I need to make sure maybe I'm just going to buy this tile, even though I don't have the exact money for it. Cause I don't want them to take it. Mm-hmm. You know, purple buildings are the most expensive and they're the most victory points. If you have the most of them, so maybe I want to just buy that purple tile so I don't have to worry about somebody else taking it. Mm-hmm. But then there's those times where you have that turn where you scoop up all four tiles and everyone's like, dang it, man, mm-hmm. I was going to grab that tile or mm-hmm. whatever. It's just very satisfying. Yeah. Great game. What would you rate it? I would rate it an eight. I really liked it. I'm giving the game a 7.5 out of 10. I really like it too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really good game. I would recommend giving this game a try if you like tile placement, hand management, easy turns with good rewarding gameplay. I definitely think you should give this game a shot. That is Alhambra. All right. Next up, I want to talk about Orleone. And this is a bag building game. It's designed by Reiner Stockhausen, art by Clemens Franz, who's not my favorite artist. It's very, looks very uh, classic, boring Euro. Is it the same guy that did uh, mm-hmm. Grand Austria Hotel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. Fair enough. It's published by DLP Games. In this game, players are competing in medieval France to get the most coins, goods, and trading stations built. They do this by drawing character tiles from a bag and placing them out in their their personal player board to take various actions. Each of these actions give you a benefit. Oftentimes, it's an additional character tile to put in your bag and an additional benefit like coins, goods, movement up the development track, 
which helps you score more points. The castle spot lets you increase the amount of tiles you draw from the bag. The trader allows you to expand your city and gives you an additional place you can activate, often using less workers. There is also the craftsman who lets you build technology and you get to take a disc and cover up any one of the spots for character tiles on the board with a few restrictions. So going forward, you need less characters to activate that spot. Then there are three locations at the top of the board that allow you to move along the roads or waterways of France and to build trading stations in the towns. What makes this game so special is the bag building part of it. When you are done using your character tiles, they go back in your bag along with any new ones you acquired. Early on, you have a pretty good, if not exact idea of what you're gonna draw, but as you build your bag, it's a little bit more unpredictable and you're kind of left with making the best out of what you draw. You might have a turn where you draw two or three of the same tile and you can't use them to activate anything, but you can still place them out on your board in preparation for your next round. Then you use the next turn to fill in all the missing spots and would be able to take several, several actions that turn. So if you end up drawing tiles that you don't get what you want, you can do an action you don't really want or you can maybe just set yourself up for a really big turn the next time, which is a really a lot of fun. And this is different than a deck builder where you may have to discard that really awesome card you just drew because you didn't draw the right card that goes with it. You get to keep it in your hand for the next round. You can even also send them off to the town hall where you get a small bonus and they leave your bag forever. This can be really helpful if you end up collecting more of one character tile than you need. I really like this game. There's something that is really good about how somewhat simplistic it is mm-hmm. with the things that you can do. And it gives you that same deck building feel while still just pulling chits out of a bag. Yeah. There's a little bit of the push your luck element that you would get out of it as you're pulling stuff out. You don't know exactly what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like that because you're almost, you get these things and then you just do what you can with them. Yeah. You know, certain technologies allow you to use the different types of tokens as wilds. Mm-hmm. So you can maybe acquire those. And if you know you're going to get a lot of these, a lot of knights, maybe you're get a technology that knights are wild. I don't think there is one that does that, but I digress. <laughs> so, yeah, you can get these special buildings that allow that. There's monks that are wild for anything. And then if it gets to a point where you have too many of one, you can always send them out to the town hall. Mm-hmm. That said... One of the things I like is the expansion Trade and Intrigue. Yeah, it's really good. And specifically the trade board for the town hall. Because the town hall board in the base game is fine. Mm -hmm. I don't think it provides enough want to continue to go there. Whereas something like the trade board gives you way more motivation to send your tokens to that board. Yeah. There's a little bit more going on. There's a little bit more you can get. There, I think it just offers a little bit more for a player. So I think the base game without the trade board, mm-hmm. I wouldn't rate as high as using that trade board every time. Really? I like the base game. I like sending my workers. I like sending out my, my deck or my bag yep. in these games. But a lot of people are kind of resistant to that. They're like, oh, I worked for that tile. I can't just give it up. Or I'm like, no, get it out of my bag. I like to have a really thin, small bag. So every time I draw, I know exactly what I'm going to get. I know exactly what I'm going to do with it. Do you race to get as many draws out of your bag as you can? I think it's the night spot. Oh, um, oftentimes I like to get at least to seven. There's eight. You um, have to get all the way to the end of the track, so you have to... But there's one you have to skip, so it's not yeah. always worth it to get to eight. So, no, I always try to get to seven. I do like to get a lot of spaces out there, but um, I don't think it's necessary because 
sometimes you draw, like I said, sometimes you draw and you don't get a good thing that you want, but you set your pieces out there anyways, and you have a, you maybe take one action that turn, but then the next time you draw, there's the rest of your bag. Now you're going to do all five of those actions and you're going to have a big turn and that's fun. Well, and there's 18 rounds, I think, in the Mm -hmm. game. A set number of rounds. Yeah. So there's a, it. When you first hear how many rounds, you're like, man, that's going to be a long game. Mm -hmm. But it's exactly like you said. There's going to be a couple off turns, quote unquote, where you might be only able to do one action, but you're setting yourself up to have bigger actions later on, which Mm -hmm. I like. My only complaint with the game is just how drab looking it is. The theme is boring. The, the, The character tiles are boring. Like It's hard to tell, like, oh, which one's the builder? Which one's the craftsman? Like, who knows? You know, there's, it's just, I, I would love to see this game redesigned with a more interesting modern theme. What would you want a theme to be? You know what I thought of? Maybe New Orleans and you could make it like a jazz theme, you know, or I love gardening themes, so I could do a garden theme. Anything that's not like medieval France. <laughs> that's, I suppose that's fair. Yeah. Just, I love how you said New Orleans because then you can change it. You can be like, it's New Orleans. Orleans, yeah, the second edition. Yeah, yeah. See, clever, huh? You could do, it's you could not do jazz. Clever. Yeah, it is. you could do jazz, or you could do food, like because New Orleans is known for their food. You could do either one of those, and then it'd still be kind of a plan to the name, but the same game. I think that'd be really good. That would be pretty interesting. Let's talk about the board where you're moving your meeple around. Yeah, there is this kind of off board where you have a meeple that starts off in Orleans. And you move it around the board, collecting goods, dropping off trade posts. Mm-hmm. Now, there is like a somewhat of a race with it mm-hmm. because you want to make sure you're getting to these spots first because A, you're going to be able to get the goods and B, you're able to drop off your trading posts, which equates to victory points. Victory points. The way you score points in this game is through goods, money, and then trading posts plus citizens times star level. Mm-hmm which is the development track at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And only one trading post can be built in each city. Except so, Orleans. Except for Orleans. So you want to be the first to get there or you want to go in the opposite direction as other people. So it definitely gets tight at four players. And when you place your discs out, you can only move one spot. Mm-hmm. But there's two types of move. There is the ferry action. Yeah, there's the yeah, you where you go along the rivers and then there's the wagon where you go along the roads. Right. And the 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 map is broken up. So there's there's quite a bit of tension in that board. I don't know if there's the interaction for the most part is somewhat light except for a variety of things. One being that board, the other one being the town hall where you're sending your people out. Because sometimes you want to be either the first person to go there or the very last. Mm -hmm. Because you can get more of those like little citizen tokens, which equate to victory points. Yep. Sometimes, you know, the the game is component limited. So you might want to be the first one. You might want to be there first because there's only one tile character tile left on that spot. So you might want to go there first. So the the tension really is being the first to do that action that you want to do before the other people go. But yes. you can kind of plan around that and you can see what other people are doing on their board. You know, it depends on whose turn, who's, you know, it goes around the board, turn order goes around the board, which is nice. I like how most of the gameplay is simultaneous until it comes to taking those turns. Mm-hmm. And even then, it's only a handful of turns and then you do everything basically at the same time. Yeah, you're drawing your tiles out. Quick. Yeah, you're drawing tiles out of the bag. You're trying to set them up to do the actions 
the most efficiently you can. Mm -hmm. So I really like that aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. I put this game on my top 10 list of welcoming games and Bob completely disagrees with me there. But I think it's intuitive enough to where people figured it out. That's why I really think if they redid the theme, this could this game could be huge. Yeah, I'm it's yeah, I don't know. It's intuitive, but I don't know if it's I don't want to say easy enough, but I don't think it would work well as a welcoming game. I just don't. I don't I mean I to be fair, I don't have experience teaching it to new people. You mm-hmm. do, mm-hmm. but it's, I don't know if I would. It's not complex. There's nothing that's like a gotcha moment. Like you got to remember, you don't have to remember all these things. Like where you put your pieces is really into it. Like there's pictures on the board. Like, you you know, you don't have to try to figure things out. It's not super puzzly. You just you just make do with what you get. And your actions are really simple and straightforward. I th- I think it's great. I really like this game. I rate wait, it. Wait, don't rate it yet. Let's okay. t- Let's save our ratings. Until after we discuss Altiplano. All right. So Altiplano, this is a bag building game as well, designed by Reiner Stockhausen. And the art is by Clemens Franz, which let me say, I was shocked because I like this art. Like he no, is not the artist. No. Yes. It's goofy. It's silly. It's kind of like a derpy little. Um, the llama with llama. his. Yeah. With his. Uh, but, the, but it's colorful. His... It doesn't look like it doesn't look like classic boring Euro. I could say you could say, yeah, the art isn't that exciting. Fine. But it's not dull Euro. It's not bad. So it's not the artist. It's the style that I don't like. All right. In this game, players are in the South American highlands fishing, mining ore, breeding alpacas, trading goods that are produced from these resources and building up their warehouses. They do this by drawing tiles out of the bag, assigning the tiles to locations that are their personal player board, and then on the action phase, traveling to those locations to carry out any actions on that space. None of the action spaces are mandatory, so if they run out of movement actions, they can leave their tiles there for a future turn. Similar than Orleans. There are six location spots in the middle of the table arranged at random in a circle. Each location has multiple actions. Some are pretty straightforward. For example, if you go to the farm, and you have an alpaca, on your action space, you can take a food. Then both the alpaca and the newly acquired food go into your container. Or if you have an alpaca and food in the action space, you can now take a wool. If you have a wool and food, you get to grab a cloth. Some of these locations are a little more complex. For example, if you go to the market, you can sell goods. But again, when you sell them, you take the good you just sold and put it in your container, and the coins go into your supply. You can also buy an extension for your board. This is another action space that you have at this specific location. It allows you to do more in that location, which is really helpful because you are restricted in your movement around the board. You get one free cart movement each round, so you want to make good use of that location and try to do as much as you can on it. The cart allows you to move three spaces in any direction, which means you can go anywhere. If you place a food in the movement action space, you can then move an additional time one space in either direction. So ideally, you want to end your turn at a location that you'll be able to utilize again the next round since you're already there. Now again, anytime you spend goods in an action space, they go back into your container, and when it's time to draw tiles out of your bag and you're out of tiles, you dump everything from your container into your bag to redraw, which is a very different than Orleans, where you just put them all back in your bag and you redrawing from the bag again. So you, it's possible that a tile you just bought, you'll never draw again. Where in this game, Everything goes into your container until your bag is empty. It all goes back in your bag. So you're going to draw everything. So what makes this game so exciting is the different paths to victory. You could go heavy storage and put a bunch of cheap 
different goods in storage early on so you could work on scoring up the higher victory point rows. You can also score a lot of points by gaining and fulfilling orders. You can try to focus on getting all the high value goods or you can do a combination of everything. I think what I like about this game slightly more than I like about Orleone is the way you go through your tokens. Mm -hmm. So after you use your tokens, you put them in your little wagon. Mm -hmm. And then after you're done drawing, so it's almost closer to a deck builder where you have a discard pile and then you don't shuffle the discard pile until you're done with your draw pile. Mm -hmm. Whereas Altiplan or Orleone has a little bit more push your luck with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Where this is, you when you acquire those tiles, you know you're eventually going to get them. Yeah, you I know you're going to go through your set. For that reason, that's why I like thinning my bag and Oleon so much better. Is because you you want to make sure you're drawing all those tiles. Where this game, you're going to guarantee you're going to draw the tiles. You know, you're not going to get lucky by drawing your good tiles a bunch of times. You're going to draw them all equal amount. Yeah, there's less tension in the draw mm-hmm. than there is in Orleon. Mm-hmm. But you're forced to thin out your bag and Altiplano because you want to put those you're not forced to do it you want to put those goods in storage because you score points that way yeah because you want to get a certain amount of goods within that storage space in order to capitalize on those points plus there's goal cards mm-hmm. which you don't get in Orleans so mm-hmm. you want to acquire a certain amount of different good good tokens in order to score those points you can acquire additional objective cards there's none of that stuff in there so I do I do like those aspects of it yeah I think Orleans is all about getting your bag to be exactly what you want it to do so that you can do all these turns that gain you points. Where Altiplano, it's all about the movement around the board. So you can't do actions unless you're in that location. And you get limited action location, um, you get limited movement. So you want to go, okay, I want to be able to do this action. I know I have an idea of what's in my bag. I can't really look, but I know because I can see what's not in my bag. So I know I'm going to draw another cacao. So I want to stay at this location. So I'm going to end my turn at this location, do an action there, and then draw the card I need again at the same location and do that same again. So maximizing the um, your movement in this game is really, I think, the heart of this game. I would agree with that. That actually is the part that I probably like the least in this game is the restriction of the movement. Mm-hmm. Because it's interesting enough because... I don't know. It's weird because you can go anywhere on the board. Anywhere mm-hmm. you're at, you're within three spaces and you can use your cart little token to mm-hmm. move one to three spaces. So you can get to any tile. You can go forwards. You can go backwards. It doesn't matter. You can get to any tile with that one thing. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't have additional ones, you can pay food to move one space. Mm-hmm. And usually you can plan it like, okay, I need to go to those two tiles. They're going to be one of them is going to be next to one of the other tiles I'm next to. So there's a little bit of that spatial planning of how you're going to move your person. Mm-hmm. I, cre- I think it creates just, a, just enough tension to make it difficult and make give it more strategy but not punishing. Yeah, and I don't know if it just doesn't click well with me having that strategy because normally it's a game like that I would be all in on mm-hmm. because it gives you that little bit of extra. I think there's something quote-unquote pure of Orleans that I like because, again, it's... Like you said, you're trying to get your bag to be exactly what you want. Yep. Which I love. And this one, it feels more, way more about that deck building, bag building aspect, discarding a bunch of stuff and just filtering through those things. Mm-hmm. There's still a little bit of push your luck because 
when you dump all those tokens back in there, you're you're just grabbing whatever, so you mm-hmm. don't exactly know. But that movement piece, it's re- not super restrictive, mm-hmm. but it's restrictive enough. Maybe it's maybe that's the reason why it doesn't like jive with me because you can get anywhere, but you can't get anywhere, mm-hmm. but you can pay food to get there. But also, there are things that you won't maybe ever be able to do. So if you don't have a starting tile of an alpaca, like you're never gonna be able to make wool and cloth so you don't no matter what game you're playing your strategy is you're not going to go to all six places on the board either you're going to focus on a good game you're focusing on maybe three or four places and you're staying within that and every game is different depending on your starting tiles and your starting abilities i do like the fact that you get a starting tile Mm -hmm. so you are separating yourself from other people it's almost like having a little player power Mm -hmm. i think what i like in orleone better is the fact that you get those technology tiles so you determine which spots become better so in mm-hmm. in that one you get these little technology tiles and they're basically just like little wagon wheels essentially i guess mm-hmm. and what you do is you take it and you place it over a character spot on an action so now that action instead of costing three tokens only costs two and you get to determine which one it covers up mm-hmm. the first one you have to do is a, you have to cover up a farmer but Aside from that, you can cover up. So if you went real heavy in knights, maybe you don't cover up knights. Mm-hmm. This game doesn't have that, and I really like that aspect. In, in order how to, things get easier and cheaper. The, you, you can get things easier and cheaper, but you have to essentially buy new action spots from mm-hmm. the, uh, market. the market, which is fine because you still you get to do something similar in Orleans because you get uh, building tiles. There's one and twos. Mm-hmm. So in some ways it's pretty similar, but those ones can almost be additional. They're not better action spots. They're extra action spots. Mm -hmm. So I can have the cheese factory and I can just be pumping out cheese as long as I keep putting farmers there, that kind of thing. Where in Altiplano, they're like kind of the same spots. They do the same thing, but with less resources, they're cheaper. Yeah. yeah. It also makes that spot more desirable because you can now do more actions within that one location tile. Yes. There's certain aspects I like of both. And I can see the progression from Orleans to Altiplano mm-hmm. and what they did. The movement piece, I keep coming back to that because it's restrictive enough, but it's not really, but it kind of is, but sometimes it's not. And I, I think love that's it. I think that's the problem I have with it is it doesn't have the identity I thought it would. Either make it restrictive or make it easy. Don't make it easy, sometimes restrictive, other times. I can... like it. I like the strategy that it comes with having to move around and where to go. I really enjoy that about this game. But this game is a lot more, it's not more complex, but it's definitely more thinkier and puzzlier. So, you know, that's why I like Orleans as a, you know, maybe a casual game with casual gamers. This one won't go over well. This one's a lot more complex just because not only do you have that bag building, resource management, the way that the goods convert, but you don't actually spend them, you know, is a little unusual. And then the movement on top of it, it's definitely more, more to learn there. I agree. Yeah. Like I said, there's there's certain things I like about both individually, but you want to do you want to go into ratings? Do yeah, wanna, go for it. You right. tell me your rating. Okay, I am gonna give Orleans eight out of ten. I'm okay. giving Altiplano seven out of ten. Okay, I like Orleans better, and maybe it's how much more pure of a game it is. Mm-hmm. I hate to use the word pure because I don't necessarily think a game's like pure, but it's simple enough. There's it's engaging. You have 
this little bit of, oh, what am I going to pull out of my bag? Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm going to pull out of my bag. And you kind of just need to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. You get that in Altiplano, but you know you're constantly, you know, sifting through your deck, which is fine. I find the, again, the the movement piece. I don't think it's as engaging as I would like for it to be. Mm-hmm. Were you? Did you play this with us when we got really into this game? We got, At one point, we were, I think it was, it was before COVID a couple of years ago. We were playing it every week. Were you in on those games? No. Oh, we we loved this game and played it so much. And I loved it. At one point, both of these games were on my top 10 list of games. I love them both. And I still love them both. But definitely higher up a little bit a while ago when we were playing them so much. I remember that because I would come into game night a little bit later and you guys would be in the middle of it. And we always knew like we had to wait for you guys to finish your game or uh, Altiplano mm-hmm. before we could set up another game because you guys had to get through that first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were playing it like every week for a while. I love these games. I love them both a lot. I think I like Orleon a hair better. So I give Orleon a 10 out of 10. I love this game. I think it's a perfect game. If you redesigned it at, with better artwork and a more um, inclusive theme, uh, I think that this could be a huge hit for a lot of people because it's it's there's so much strategy, but it's not complicated. And I love Altiplano because it is a little bit more complicated. I have tried to teach it to um, casual gamers and it was a little bit difficult. You know, that was tricky. I wouldn't recommend that. I would rate this game a nine and a half out of 10. I I love it. The thing is, it's unlikely that Orleone is going to get rethemed anytime soon because in the US it's released as through Tasty Minstrel Games, which is done. Mm -hmm. So Capstone Games picked it up. And they just reprinted it as as it is without any additional stuff. So it's unlikely that you're going to see a new and improved version. Of- I should, you know, can you think of any other bag building games like this that are this popular, like Meteor Euro games like this? I should design one based on Orleone with a lo- lovely theme. Because I don't I think there's, would- a, there's just not very many games out there. I want to play that game. You mm-hmm. should do it. You should do it for sure. I'm, I'm down. I'll play test it. You'll help me. I'm not creative. I'm not going to help you, okay. but I'll play it. <laughs> like I'm not going to help you through the design process. Well, I love bag building games. I think there's just so much depth to the strategy with a little bit of you know randomness of what you pull, but the, but you can also choose what's in your bag, which is really great. I definitely recommend giving these games a try if you like resource management, bag building, medium weight euros, great games. That's Orleone and Altiplano. All right, so that's going to wrap up the games we've been playing this week. We are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we are going to be joined by the founder and executive director of Game to Grow, Adam Davis. All right, we are back in continuing with our series on board games and mental health. Today, we are joined with Adam, founder and executive director of Game to Grow, a nonprofit dedicated to the use of games for therapeutic, educational, and community growth. Thank you for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me, Bob. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, Game to Grow and how, how you started it, why you started it. Let's hear a little bit about this organization. Sure. So Game to Grow, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization. We're based out of the greater Seattle area. Um, we've, we've existed as a, as a nonprofit since uh, 2017. So we just are, are having our five-year birthday right now. Uh, we're very oh, excited about that. 
Um, but the work we've been doing, my, myself and the other founder of game to grow Adam Johns, have been doing for about a decade. And that is we've been using tabletop role-playing games like, but not limited to Dungeons and Dragons, for social skills programs for youth. And that is what we, we were doing that about 10 years ago, sort of while we were in grad school. My, my background is in drama therapy, but master's mm -hmm. in education and Adam Johns, his, his background is in family therapy. And we were running some after-school programs using tabletop role-playing games to help kids you know, connect with each other, make friends. And we realized just how powerful these games are as a tool to be used intentionally, systematically and intentionally. So we then struck out on our own, had a small for-profit company, just the two of us for a few years, and then realized we could do so much more with it if we were able to expand into the nonprofit sector. So we switched into a nonprofit in 2017, uh, got a foundational grant from Child's Play. And now, uh, because we went virtual in, in 2020, we now have, we don't just serve the greater Seattle area, we have around 150 participants from across the lifespan from all over the world. So we have participants in all time zones in America. We have participants in Australia and parts of Asia. Um, so we, we've really expanded to meet the emerging needs of the last few years. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I wouldn't have expected it to encompass something so large, but once you, you know, break into online, there's actually no limit to, you know, where exactly you can be, right? Like what type of system do you guys use for that do you use something like roll 20 or do you use some sort of um, what's your online tool of choice so we have a dnd beyond for our participants and we that's sort of the way that the character sheets and things like that if we're playing dnd &D, can be tracked over over distance and and you know remotely um but not every game master relies on the same tool so i, I mentioned we have 150 participants that's not just adam johns and i anymore we now have about a staff of about 30 professional therapeutic game masters that we have trained who then run these games for the participants from all over the world. So every game master is a little bit different, just like you, they would in a, in a casual game. Every therapeutic game master also has their own style. So like myself, I'm not crazy about online tools like Roll20 or, you know, Shard Tabletop or, or any of those kinds of programs because I'm not very tech savvy in that way. Um, <laughs> sure. So it pulls yep. me out of the system. My background is in drama therapy. I want to be able to move my body around and look at faces. Um, so I find a lot of those tools distracting from my, myself personally, but we have members of our team like Michael Moore, um, who's our uh, director of group services. He's a fantastic um, wizard when it comes to the tech. Uh, so I sometimes will go to him and ask him how to you know, incorporate a little more Roll20 and things like that. So some of our some of our facilitators like Roll20, um, there's uh, some other you know folks who we use even like a share screen on Zoom with a Google Doc. Mm -hmm. And move, oh, yeah. move pieces around on, on a Google Doc. And I've relied on some of those things as well in the past. I've, um, I, I use OBS when I'm streaming, uh, you know, my, my games. And so therefore I, I can have overlays and things like that too, where I can make the maps pop up over my shoulder, which is a really great way to keep everybody in the zoom window instead of going and pulling up open other tabs and then getting maybe a little bit distracted by that as well. Yeah. I imagine you want to see, see people. That's part of the social part, right? So exactly. walk me through what what does this look like if you sign up for your program you get to, you get a therapist in a group that you're with Yes. So we build our cohorts very intentionally. So a lot of the times uh, and the, the way we were able to expand to meet the needs of a larger population so fast is we were originally just doing in-person groups in Seattle, uh, mm -hmm. Seattle, Bellevue, Tacoma, just the, the greater Seattle area, like I said earlier. And what would happen is a, a parent or a, a caregiver or a teacher or a therapist would, would identify that the youth needed a little social support. And so they would join our waiting list. And our, our group's coordinator would uh, have an intake meeting, figure out what the goals are, maybe what some of what the challenges might be for that young person, and then put them in the right adventuring group. 
So oh. it's not, it's, this is not a direct instruction model, right? It's not the therapeutic game master isn't saying, you know, today class, we're focusing on this skill. Mm-hmm. We look at a lot of it in terms of, of social learning. We want the youth participants to connect with each other, um, to look at each other and learn from each other and not just see the adult as the, the source of wisdom. So we want to build our groups really intentionally. So we've historically, you know, didn't have a spot for every youth participant because we wanted to make sure they were in the right group. So what that meant was we had participants who we were trying to find the right group for, um, especially ones that were in other areas we couldn't serve. So then what happened, what has happened now that we're all virtual is we can make groups from all over the place. We have groups where there's people in Australia and someone in New Hampshire. Um, So we're building that group really intentionally through the process of an intake. And then what, what a participant gets when they sign up is they get 10 weeks of a 90 minute session every week. And so when they, they come in, they'll sometimes bring their own characters. If, they've, if they're familiar with the game, we can have pre-made characters for them. And then they'll play that game with that same group of people. Usually it's around four participants with one game master mm-hmm. for 10 weeks. And that 10-week period, um, participants can choose to, to you know, register again for the next quarter. We do a, a, a quarter system. So we, we kind, of, kind of in alignment with the school year. We have mm-hmm. different programming over the summer. But for the school year, we basically have three 10-week programs. And over the course of that, uh, over the over the course of all these quarters, participants some participants will stay for a quarter or two. They'll learn a new hobby, build some friendships, and then want to get out into the community and play at the friendly local game store. Maybe make some friends at school or at work. Not and maybe some they of have our the confidence to do that. Exactly, and and we are like helping people understand a, a community, right? We're giving mm-hmm. them a community to participate in because now they can go to a game store, go to a gaming convention. Most of our staff right now uh, is at PAX East in Boston. Yeah. Um, so th- they can go to a place like that and then they can speak the culture, they can speak the language and then they can participate with something that they love, find that shared interest. Yeah, Bob and I were talking about how hard it is to break into that. You want the habit, you know you want to do that, but to go to a game group is so intimidating. Right. And so much of it has to do with shared language, right? Some of it has to do with shared culture. And so part of what we're giving when we're having these gaming groups is, is allowing some someone an opportunity to learn the language, learn the culture so that they can take that and translate that into their, their own life in their own community and their own hobbies. Yeah, that's amazing. I love it. So what would you get? Okay, so if I um, chose your program over my, my own local group, what would I get from your program that I wouldn't get within my own if I did it myself? The best way I like to explain this when I am asked this question is this is like the difference between um, having a conversation with a stranger, a conversation with a friend, or a conversation with a mentor. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're, those those conversations can all look very similar, right? You're having, you're sitting down, looking at someone, having a, hopefully a pleasant time talking to someone, but the intentionality there is very different. So, mm-hmm. you know, talking to a stranger, how's the weather? Talking to the barista at the coffee shop, right? You can have a very nice time with that. And I have mm-hmm. friends that I have really wonderful conversations, deep conversations with, and then I also go to therapy and the therapist, and I have a very different contract. I don't have to take care of my therapist. The therapist's mm-hmm. job is to take care of me and guide me through that that insight, growth, and change. The same thing is true with intentional role-playing game experience. You can go to a game store and play a game that is maybe like the barista. Maybe it's like a friend. Uh, But when you come to to grow program, you're getting that third tier where that game master's job is to take care of the participant. It is really, the contract is very explicit. Our game master is there. Well, sometimes, you know, sometimes the participants in our program are struggling and sometimes they will be tough on the game master and tough on each other. And so that game master is trained 
to mediate the social social space and really scaffold appropriately to allow that participant the opportunity to struggle and the opportunity to grow. And then we also guide our participants through the check-in process and the checkout process to allow some of our, our participants to connect what's happening in the game to their real life experience. So that intentionality of designing the game to really meet those real world areas of social growth is part of our program. So it's so, so much of what we do is emergent, right? We allow the game space to, to prompt and then we can help shape some of those pro-social interactions, but also we are, we are designing the in-game scenarios very, very explicitly. So for example, like if I have a participant who's struggling with building some social confidence, doesn't speak up very much, doesn't take a lot of appropriate risks, we might build a situation in the game where that participant is the only one that the, the you know the ruler of this kingdom will speak to. And then <laughs> yeah. they're the ones that are summoned forth to tell that ruler, well, there's zombies climbing over the hills. They're about to attack the town, right? So the, the, the ruler needs to batten down the hatches and, and rally the army. And they'll only listen to this one player. Uh, and that player awesome. then has to build that confidence. And the game master is trained. We train all of our game masters to understand that it's not about the dice roll, right? It's not about a charisma check for that player. This is about, is that player taking a risk? Is this an area of growth for them? And how can we reinforce that and celebrate that? If they, you know, even if they said, uh, 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 your majesty, uh, there are zombies, right? <laughs> if that was a huge risk for that player to take, we want to celebrate that and let it be very successful. So that's the, the, the way that our game masters are trained is to really understand the, the challenges that a player might be experiencing and their areas of growth and then really direct the, the, both the in-game scenario and the group to support that growth. Do you try to put players together that are all working on like the same character, you know, the same abilities and stuff? Or do you try to vary it up so that you can work on each one? And well, you know, it's it really is a peer learning model. And so for that to be the case, we, we really like to have our participants working on different things. As an example, sense. right, I've got I've got a, a participant who's very risk averse. If I had mm-hmm. a group that was all risk averse, not a lot would happen. <laughs> not a lot would happen in the game. Story. And yeah. if I had a lot of participants who were all working on that impulsivity, a whole lot would happen. <laughs> um, yeah. But if I can have a group that's mixed, right? So I have some participants who are really working on taking appropriate risks and other ones working on delay of gratification, maybe thinking things through ahead of time. Those two participants get to be in the same space where the risk averse player can go, gosh, my character doesn't get a lot of spotlight, but that other player really keeps the story moving. Wow, I kind of want a little bit of that. Yeah. And then the yeah. other player who's the more impulsive one goes, wow, my character gets in lots of trouble. And really like, you know, maybe gets my hit points down a little bit more than I want, but that other player, you know, they think things through and that's, that keeps them safe. So I want to do a little bit more of that. And so the, the, the experience of having them be able to learn from each other and have the game master also kind of point that out in a, in a non judgmental way in a, in a non uh, punitive way, but just to help them understand and, and relate all, all of this is based in the narrative, right? We're, we're really living in the story and allowing the story to be that, that space, what we call in, in our training program, we call narrative transference. That's where we we attach our subconscious or unconscious thoughts, feelings, and desires to the things that are happening in the story. Our game masters are all doing that very actively, um, you know, mediating that space where they're, the character can hold some of the challenges and the player can have some of the success and vice versa. Yeah, that's so interesting. That makes that makes a lot of sense. I think kids really can learn a lot from their peers, you know, more so than adults, right? More than Absolutely. being told what to do. <laughs> We can get observable behaviors very mm-hmm. easily 
if we wanted to just make it really clear. Today, we're going to do this. And if you do this, your characters will all get gold. Or if we do this, mm. you'll all get advantage or experience points. I could get discrete observable behaviors. By the end of the session, I could have a very clearly trained group of young people doing the thing that I want them to do. But that doesn't translate to real life. And it doesn't mm -hmm. actually give that sort of intrinsic motivation, right? One of the nice things about tabletop role-playing games is that they are more uh, fun and the yeah. characters and the stories move along better if the players are working together. So mm -hmm. it already has this wonderful intrinsic motivation for wanting the, the, you know, the players wanting to keep, keep participating and keep getting better at participating. So when, when a session happens where players are talking over each other or arguing, what a fantastic opportunity. That's not a bad thing, right? That's a mm -hmm. good thing because it teaches you, oh, wow, there's an obstacle we have to work on to get to the thing we want to do, which is, you know, save the world. Yep. Yep. I love it. I know my daughter struggles. She's 13 and she struggles with working in group projects at school. And she's like, I just want to be alone. I don't want to have to work with other people. I'm like, ah, that's why you need to work with other people. You need to keep doing things, even if you're not very good at it. Yeah. In real life, you're going to be forced to work with people. And sometimes you're uh -huh. going to be forced with, to work with people that you don't see eye to eye on. Mm -hmm. And you need to still focus on getting a good outcome or a good result with what you're doing. How do you guys pick campaigns? Do you guys have, is it all homebrew stuff? Is it, you know, you guys are doing specific modules. Is there something that you guys have created in your organization? Like here is an adventure path. Like how do you guys do that? Well, um, every game master is different. So we, we always do tweak whatever, whatever the module is. So it, it, even if someone is using a pre-made module, whether it's one we've created in-house and we're using it again, or someone picks a module up off the shelf, we're always modifying it to meet the needs, either in the moment or, or preparing your head or, or both, most, most likely. Uh, but Gendero has also made some adventure modules we created as part of a, a Kickstarter we ran, actually, uh, called Critical Core. So uh, what what we largely do in our programming is we use Dungeons and Dragons, but we also heavily modify it, right? We, we take out a lot of the rules in D&D that aren't necessary or are maybe cumbersome for what we really want, was that, which is that authentic relational social play. Mm -hmm. So what we did with Critical Core is we kickstarted a, a, what we call a beginner's box or a starter set for therapeutic role-playing games. And that is a simplified rule set and uh, also a facilitator's guide and a game master's guide and some modules. And those modules are ones we've played over the course of the decade uh, that we've been doing this uh, again and again and again. And we have a very specific kind of uh, narrative design that we use so that every encounter, I mentioned earlier, my, my background is in is in drama therapy. Um, it's a concept taken from script writing. We, we look at every encounter as if it's a, a narrative scene. And every, every narrative scene has a desire, an obstacle, and a tactic, right? There's always something the characters want. There's always something between the characters and the thing that they want. And then there's a tactic, the thing that they do to overcome that obstacle to get to the object or the outcome that they desire. So when we have that dot, as we call it, D-O-T, desire, obstacle, tactic, then we can build our scenes very intentionally where we, we can then line up the desires with things that are maybe analogous to their real world desires. We can build the obstacles with things that are maybe analogous to their real world obstacles, or we can, we can plant in tactics, which are then analogous to their real world tactics. We want to help them learn how to use, right? And sometimes that's collaboration, sometimes that's planning, sometimes that's, you know, uh, effective communication skills, all those kinds of things are all built in. So all of our game masters understand this sort of narrative design and then can build those dots very intentionally. Then you can even take a module that is, you know, off the shelf, a D&D or Pathfinder module, and then look at it. They're, those aren't written in this narrative design. And then 
sort of rescan it and making sure that every dot is aligned with our participants in their real world areas of social growth. Even with adventure paths and those types of things, there's always, even as me, whenever I game master anything, if I take a module and sometimes I'll tweak it just because it's not exactly what it is I'm looking for, for the progression of the story. So it's, yeah, there, there definitely are ways to manipulate that for exactly what you guys want to do. Yeah, exactly. Do you have your own group that you play with, like outside of Game to Grow? Do you do you play games? Do you like, <laughs> or is it just so much gaming involved with this that you just don't do it anymore? Um, I don't do as much gaming as I used to. Going to be super honest. Um, and part of that is time, right? As mm-hmm. as as Game to Grow has grown, you know, back when we had three employees and I ran a few groups, it was easy to have free time and a lot more time that I wanted to spend on games. And as as I have both um, spend, I spend a lot more time in a management space and a lot more time working with other people and talking about games pretty consistently that I have to be very selective about how I want to spend my gaming time. Um, sure. Because, yeah. you know, as they say, you, you know, choose the thing you love and you'll never work a day in your life. That is not true. <laughs> um, it means you kind of work all the time. Um, so I have to be very intentional about the way that I, I choose to play a game because it's so adjacent to my work life now that I have to... Um, I, I play very different games and I play different. I play differently than I play at work. Um, a lot of the games I'm playing, uh, and I still run a, a few games for Game to Grow. I, I run some hospital programs. I run some uh, groups for youth in foster care, and I run some uh, groups that I've been players I've worked with for several years now. And all of those are very, you know, very lighthearted. It's very. Um, for the most part, it's very cheerful. And the games that I tend to play in my personal life are the opposite, right? I like want to play <laughs> gritty video games. I want to play social deduction games where you don't trust anybody. Those are the kinds mm-hmm. of games that I find uh, to be personally very, very uh, exciting. Yeah, everyone's the killer, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What's your like go-to game outside of work? Like you're you're done doing your sessions, you're sitting down, you have some time to kill, maybe you have some friends over. Like what is your go-to game that you like to like to play your social deduction game, whatever. Yeah. Um, I love social deduction games so much. Um, I One of my absolute favorites is called Shadow Hunters. And I still have the same box I've had for a decade. And I it still has like wax on it from when I lit candles for atmosphere. You know, and the, nice. and the wax <laughs> yeah. the dripped on, the, on the, the box. And I have actually used that one in Game to Grow groups as well. It's a, it's a great social deduction game where it's a team-based social deduction game mm-hmm. where you have to figure out who's on your team. And it also has the trappings of, you know, ancient battle between, um, you know, uh, um, hunters and shadows. And you have to figure out who's who's on your team and then attack the others. There's werewolves and vampires, and it's great fun. It's, it's uh, That's one of my favorites. Um, the games that I play now, because my time is so limited, especially as we were talking before, I just had a child. So my yeah. time is especially limited now. So the game that mm-hmm. I'm playing the most right now is Azul. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. And it is awesome because you can play quickly. <laughs> um, yeah. You can play it a couple of times. You can also, um, like listen to a podcast while you play it. You don't really have to talk while you play it. So it's great for when I have to be quiet in my house. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because there's a yeah. sleeping baby. I can still play Azul. My wife and I love that game. And and um, so that's that one is great because it's one of those one of those games you can play quickly and you want to play it again, which is a kind of yep. I think a, a rare thing, especially in two player games. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I would love that game. Yeah. Especially if all of a sudden you're like collecting a bunch of stuff and then your wife doesn't move where you end up with four tiles that you can't place. You want to get it. Like, We're playing this again so I can get you back on that one. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. A couple episodes ago, we kind of talked about how we got into the hobby and we're always really curious how growing up, like how did you get into gaming? 
were you a D and D player growing up? I know, you know, for me, growing up in in the nineties and trying to play D and D, you did it in basements. You didn't talk about it. It was Bruno, like, <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, I even played Magic the Gathering, and again, that's another thing you didn't really talk about, just because people would just get on you about it. Like, what? How did you grow up into gaming and where you're at now? Uh, so I grew up, um, I'm, I'm in my late thirties right now. So I, I grew up in South Texas where some of those games were kind of frowned upon. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't oh, yeah. just in the eighties, right? It, it lasted a little, well into the nineties where I was living in South Texas. So I, um, I played D and D, um, as a know, middle school, late, late elementary, middle school kid. And it was, I never really had to keep it secret in the basement or anything like that. <laughs> you know, I wasn't like, I wasn't ashamed of it cause I was already kind of a, outcast kid a little bit anyway um so <laughs> sure. i was yep. I, I found my tribe actually through uh dragonlance books you know i i was reading the dragonlance books in my after school program and saw another kid who was also reading dragons of autumn twilight or whatever it was and then yep. we met up and then we were it was our like weekend you know D game that we, we got into when i first oh. learned D though i learned it at boy scout camp hmm. and my, my my older brother you know the classic tale my older brother was the one who introduced me to it and and you know scout master came over and, and shook our tent and told us to stop doing all that devil stuff <laughs> so it was yeah, pretty much yeah classic a classic tale um and then i um as far as board games in general i grew up playing board games with my mom you know we would play the ravensburger games you know, we would play Clue Jr. and we'd play Labyrinth, um, which is a Ravensburger game. And those were really wonderful to play games where I, you know, the, the rules weren't so complicated. So I didn't have to be um, always losing. And I also didn't have to play games that were so juvenile that my mom wasn't having fun. We, we could really connect on that way. And that was that was really special. It, when I um, re- reconnected with board games as an adult, it was because I was an actor without a lot of money. And board games are a great way to invest once and then play a lot. Um, and I had a friend who worked at a board game store and he got discounts. So we played a whole lot of board games as a way to, to save money and still be able to do stuff together. So that was my my reconnection was, you know, as a as a starving artist, a poor actor getting getting playing games. <laughs> That it, yeah, until you get money, and now all of a sudden you're a collector, and it's you have the opposite problem. <laughs> oh yes, I have so many games that are still wrapped in plastic that I buy on Kickstarter and then put on the shelf with the other games I've kickstarted. Uh-huh. See, I can't do that, man. If I get a brand new game, I'm I'm unwrapping the plastic. Very rarely do I keep a game in the plastic. <laughs> I want to punch goes the on game. Your shelf of shame, but at least it's unwrapped. Hey, I don't have oh. a shelf of shame. I have all my games intermixed, so I don't know exactly how many are <laughs> like on the shelf of shame or not. I just I was just moving my my stuff aside to see that I have the uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse game the you know the reskinning of that that just mm-hmm. just shipped the Essentials Edition I think yes, right I haven't, yeah. haven't opened it yet I still have my old uh, Sentinels game that I don't play very much these days um, but I got the new one with all the beautiful cards that I haven't even had a chance to open it up and look through it yet. Well, you'll play them about ten years when your baby's <laughs> about ten. <laughs> right, yeah, there's exactly. a there's that time when the kids are young that. You're just you just struggle to get in whatever game you possibly can. Azul, fine. I don't as long as we're doing something. <laughs> but then know? once your baby's like one, Azul has to go away because those pieces are too uh, delicious looking. <laughs> That's true. Look yeah, like yeah. Starburst, like yeah. exactly like Starburst. That's true. The other game that I've been playing with my wife uh, a lot lately has been The Crew. Oh, I, we love that game. Yeah, it's so good. Ooh, yeah. That- 
you know, co- cooperative trick taking game. I'm mm-hmm. I'm still learning, um, but I love that that game has it's cooperative. But mm-hmm. there's that layer of you can't just tell anybody the other person what to do, right? It, yeah, you, know, you have to be able to to actually collaborate and not just like pandemic style tell somebody else what to do on their turn. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that one's been really fun, and the, I love the story with that one too. That we're actually looking for that mysterious ninth planet. We have to work. It gets harder and harder and harder, which is like just very satisfying to me as a gamer. Yep. I'm glad you told me what the theme was because I honestly didn't know what it was until just now. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't read the flavor text. <laughs> no, man. no, and like some of those games, there's like theme, but is there really? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's not really in the crew. It doesn't really matter. And there's different versions of it where you're going to explore the ocean and it's the same game. You just have different missions you go on, but it's still a you know cooperative trick-taking game in its, at its core. Yeah, my wife and I, play a ton of cooperative games and partly I think it's because of that communication piece because it gives us so sometimes with games especially in deep euro games sometimes you just there's no talking because everyone's just focusing in on the gameplay so something like a cooperative game is nice because you're able to sit down you're able to talk out different solutions you come up with something uh the quarterbacking thing is that can be a lot of problems in cooperative games. Again, my wife and I don't necessarily have too much of an issue, partly because we just don't do it. You know, we just kind of let the <laughs> other player at the end of the day, it's your turn. You decide what you're going to do. Like we might talk about what potential you could do, but I used, I used to struggle with that with, with pandemic pandemic was mm-hmm. the, you know, the first real big cooperative game that sort of swept the, the, swept the nation. And yeah. that was one where I was at times even guilty of this. Like I wanted my friends to have a good time so i wanted to win and i was like oh here's how we're gonna win you're gonna go there and then you're gonna do that and then you're gonna do this and now we're winning and then i look around the table and everybody would just be you know dead faced like not not having fun at all it's a good <laughs> learning moment in my early pandemic days yeah we can all learn things from board games huh yeah yeah pretty much yeah for sure <laughs> if people want to check out what you're doing what's the best way to them to get a hold of you People can go to uh, gametogrow.org and at gametogrow.org, they can learn about our groups. They can learn about our training program. So I, I mentioned earlier our, our training program. We've actually had a, I think about 400 therapists have been through our training program to learn the Game to Grow method of therapeutically applied role-playing games. You can learn more about that all at gametogrow.org. Um, we have ca- counseling services. We have professional consultation groups uh, for therapeutically applied game masters. All of that is at gametogrow.org. You can also find us at uh, on this, the in- internet social medias at uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. We have all those three gets at uh, Game to Grow. And then finally, I mentioned Critical Core. Uh, Critical Core is currently for for sale. That the digital version is available at uh, criticalcore.org. And we will very soon have physical kits ready to be distributed. So make sure you go join our newsletter to learn more about that. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Adam. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening to Our Shenanigans. Join us next week where we're going to have another special guest. Uh, Please leave us a review and check us out on Instagram or Facebook. Send us your questions to boardgameshenanigans at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Have a good week.